HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Hearst Ranch, grass-fed beef raised on California's central coast. Now available online through Larder Meat Company. Learn more at hearstranch.com. This week on Meat and 3, we're spotlighting the people, dishes, and ingredients decolonizing food. We're looking at our Thanksgiving plates and beyond to explore efforts to reclaim food sovereignty in Native American culture, the African diaspora, and Puerto Rico. I believe that oyster dressing is like the consummate side dish for an amazing fried turkey. What we're doing there is just working the land and we're laughing and we're creating a space for joy. And it's in that that healing occurs for us. Tune in to Meet and 3, HRN's weekly food news roundup, wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Allison Kane, and welcome to In the Sauce, a podcast about building consumer brands from the ground up. I love doing this show because I get to interview everyone from production gurus to marketing and social media mavens, anyone who can guide me on this crazy journey. This is the story of building Haven's Kitchen sauces, but it's also the story of every growing brand because we're all in the sauce. Today, I'm speaking with Marisa Zupan, founder and CEO of United Sodas, the gorgeous, naturally sweetened sodas that look like an art installation in your fridge. They also come in flavors way beyond root beer and cherry, flavors like peach, toasted coconut, pear elderflower, and my group, when we did our taste test, the lemon verbena, or the verbena, I don't remember, was everyone's favorite. Uh, Marisa has a ton of experience building brands, and this is the first one of her own. So I'm super excited to have her on. Welcome, Marisa. Thank you so much. It's such a pleasure to be here. I have to say so many of us on the United Sodas team have a huge crush on uh, in the sauce and on you. So I'm just so thrilled to, to connect with you here. That's so cool to hear. I don't think anyone's ever said that to me. <laughs> like, I'm a little bit like, wow, really? Okay. Sorry, cool. Don't mean to go overboard, but everyone messaged me before and they're like, oh, tell Allie we say hi. Oh my gosh. I love so that. The, the team loves it, listens to the podcast. Oh, so amazing. Really so yeah, they're going to get cool. all of this like deep insight into you, which, um, which will be super fun. Um, right. 
And I did. I got I got a variety case and we did like a big fun. I was with like my kids and two of their friends. Um, and we did like a like a taste test. Mm-hmm. And we actually used the box, you know, like the cardboard to like tally up our like where because it has the, the flavors drawn on the exactly. box. And so yeah. everyone had like their own little cups and everyone did sips. And then it was like a rating of one to 10. And so like the highest you could get was a 60 um, <laughs> for each flavor. And we did every single one of them. And that's why. And the verbena came out on top. Um, but it was just such a fun, like, I don't know, like, again, it's it's almost like conceptual or like. Mm-hmm. art experience like I felt like I was in a Felix Gonzalez Torres installation you know um yeah I wish I could say that's exactly what we were going for but <laughs> but you know the the experiential part of the brand is very interesting and it, it you know it really came to life once we launched the brand you know a brand mm-hmm. isn't really complete until it's in people's hands and yeah. this phenomenon even that you're talking about with the ritual of taste testing with a group, writing down, using the box to write down your scores. That is not something that we tried to engineer. That is something that people are naturally coming to on their own in in different pockets. And it's been absolutely fascinating to watch these, these, you know, these, uh, these experiences being had with the product. It it creates a, you know, a three-dimensional idea of what the brand is such a long way from the early days of developing it. Well, I think that's such a good point. I mean, before we get into kind of all of your experience, because you have much, um, I remember it goes back to when I opened the cooking school and I remember being annoyed, honestly, for like the first couple of months when people would move the chairs or Mm -hmm. like touch the stuff and then put it back, not like exactly two inches from the other thing on the (laughs) shelf or like when they started moving in and it, and it, and it was weird because I was, it went from like my brain and my space and like mm-hmm. my dream to a true community space where people felt like it was theirs. Mm-hmm. And I don't think I quite, I, I obviously I stopped feeling annoyed and I started feeling grateful, but until it wasn't until we closed the school and I got like, I would, I, I mean, I didn't, it was hundreds of emails, not just like, oh, that's so sad. We're so sorry. But like their personal experiences mm. where they felt like an actual body blow mm. that their place was gone. Absolutely. And it, it like it's it is the true, you know, a brand isn't complete when it's still kind of in the founder's sort of vision board you know it gets like a little dirtier and it gets a little messier um and it's not as pristine but it's it's like lived in it's like patina you know which is amazing yeah yeah Yeah, it's um you know it's there's a certain level of um you know i often talk about a brand as a conceptual space um Mm -hmm. you're talking about an actual physical space which is amazing um because it paints this picture really well, but a brand is a space where the, you know, the intentions of the people behind the brand and the, you know, the consumer and the public meet. And it's, it's cannot be overly engineered because both groups need to find something in it 
And it's like a tool and a space that comes to life. And it's a conversation between these two audiences and, yeah. and United Sodas, um, you know, is, is really a, a fascinating experiment in what that means from a, you know, in a very specific category. Um, but it definitely is true across all categories. Um, and, uh, Anyway. <laughs> yeah, no. So yeah, yeah. so I want to get into your, because, you know, you, your resume is um, like kind of mind blowing. And um, it's, it's just really fun because I love hearing professionals. I, you know, the only regrets I really have is that I never got any like real education on this stuff. Mm. Because I think the theory of it, you know, it's kind of like what you were saying, this, there's this meeting of like the, the, builders and then the, the public or the community right. or the consumer. But I think also there's this like where the sweet spot is between sort of like theory of brand and mm -hmm. like action, you know, and I think theory is really cool and I just never really learned it. So I'm going to learn it from you today. Okay. But first <laughs> question is off. <laughs> yeah. In the next, you know, 40 minutes, you're just going to give right. me a whole marketing degree. Okay. So, but where did you grow up? Let's start with you. When you were a kid, were you a brand person? Were you a food person? Like, what did you want to be? What was your, like, what was not even, you know, what was your vibe? Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, that's a great question. So I grew up in Vermont, in Middlebury, Vermont, and well, combination of Middlebury, Vermont, and then Italy in Florence. Mm. Um, my family is very Italian. My mom's an Italian professor mm. at Middlebury College in Middlebury. And so we spent a lot of time sort of one foot in one culture and one foot mm -hmm. in the other culture. And I'm also an only child. So, mm -hmm. so am I. you know, yeah. Okay. Okay. Very interesting. Um, yeah. So you know what it means to be an only child. There are certain aspects to how you play mm -hmm. and how you think, um, how you relate to adults, how you process what's happening in your life, which is very much like an internal conversation. At least this is the way it was yeah, for me. Totally. And um, as a child, I was extraordinarily imaginative. Mm -hmm. I one of my earliest memories of play and of understanding who I was and like what I believed in was that I, I had this um, promise to myself that I was never going to lose my imagination. I mm -hmm. recognized that like, adults didn't have the capacity to um, invent in their minds as much as kids yeah. did, that the, that the boundaries between what is real and what is imagined is very fluid with kids. Yeah. And I recognized how special that was. And it was everything to me. So I kept, you know, I would say like, I'm never going to lose my imagination. I'm never going to lose my imagination. And, um, and I think, you know, that certainly I became adult at some point. Um, right. And I don't live in total fantasy, but there is something very deep in me. And that was always, you know, creativity, imagination, and understanding that the world around you as it is can be changed yeah through knowing that or or wanting or creating something else uh and that is very much like probably why i'm ending up in doing the things that i do in my life um but that that very much was a driver of me as a kid so i was always doing something i was always making yeah. something i know I just, I wasn't sure. I'm older than you, so I'm not sure if this okay. was also just a function of like growing up in the 70s as an only child. Yeah. But yeah. Like, I remember just the entire day being alone in my room yep. making 
like I had a dollhouse and I made all of like, I got fabric and I, and I made all the walls match all the furniture, match the outfits that the people were wearing. And then I would redo the whole thing the next day. And it would just be hours. I don't know where my parents were. I think maybe they thought they were doing me a service. I guess they were in a way. Um, yeah. I don't know. I don't think they really thought very much about it, but I think that, and also it's interesting about the only child thing. I think a lot of only children grew up being told that only children were sort of selfish. Yeah. And yet I think as only children, at least the ones I know, we spent so much of our time overcompensating with like for that, like where we would just be like, can I give you my, you know, my teddy bear? Can I, can I give you my cookie? Can, you know, we Mm -hmm. were always kind of, I think we were always trying to see, and this sounds a little bit sad and maybe a little too deep, but like when you have a sibling, you kind of know that there is unconditional love for you out in the world. And I think when you're an only child, you're kind of always trying to see like if you are if you are fundamentally lovable, like right. in the world. And so it kind of it, it affects the way I think we do create things, and we are problem solving, and we're trying to like bring people together. And you know, except for the only children that go and you know lock themselves in their room and write. But <laughs> yeah. most of the most of the only children I know are, are all trying to build things to to build some sort of community. Almost Yeah. Really. Yeah, I, I I really identify with that. I think there's a sense that, you know, because you're an only child, your sense of belonging with a peer group is something that you must go out and find. It yep. does not come to you because yep. you don't have your peer group at home. Mm-hmm. And um, as much as, you know, people might want to be best friends with their parents or whatever, like, it's just not, you know, it's not the same. Mm-hmm. And so I always had a strong sense of being very, very close to my best friends, like my right. best girlfriends and my best guy friends were like my sisters and brothers. Yeah, and exactly. I and I, you know, our house was always the house that people mm-hmm. came to. Our house was like that open house, you know, yeah. it's kind of like, oh, where's, where are the kids? Oh, we'll call the zoo pants, see if they're right. over there. You know? that. And that was very much, I think, a, a benefit to me. Um, and it made me feel like I was accepted and that people, you know, yeah. that I did, that I did have those, those proxy brothers and sisters, if you yeah. will, or yeah, still community. do. So then, and this is interesting. So I know you went to college. I know that you studied religion. I was also like, well, I was a history and religion double major, but I thought it was interesting because when I interviewed Tekla from Tony's Chalk Lonely a couple of weeks ago, she was also a religion major. Very Um, interesting. And I think to the extent that like you're, you're trying to figure out why people are attracted to these sort of big institutions or, you know, I mean, you could call the Catholic church a brand if you wanted to you you could make that argument. Um, it's interesting. It's like you're, you were trying to get to sort of a understanding of human behavior, but did you think that you wanted to do something with that degree or did you like, were you planning on going into marketing at that point or were you not? Yeah, no, my, um, my experience finding out that I wanted to be in marketing happened um, 
very organically. I, I come from a very academic family, so no one in my family really knew about how marketing worked or advertising or whatever. I remember one day, very vivid memory um, of me watching a uh, VW Bug commercial, the uh-huh. one with the, with the Pink Moon song in it, yeah. Nick Drake. Yeah. And I was watching it with my dad and the Nick Drake came song came on and I go, Hey dad, you know, that's a song by this guy named Nick Drake. And he died really early, but he was a 70s singer. And it's really amazing that they're using this song because mm-hmm. da, 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 da. and my dad goes, Hey, you know, there's like a whole group of people out there whose entire job is picking out the songs right. for these ads. <laughs> and I remember looking at him and going, why is he saying this to me? Right. <laughs> what is he trying to imply? I didn't right. know. I did not put two and two together. And then I lived my life and I, whatever, I went to school and religion major for many different reasons. Um, one of which I think you really, you know, hit the nail on the head, which is I'm kind of always searching for this question of why, why do we do things? What are we seeking? Where is meaning? Mm-hmm. Why do we connect as people? Blah, blah, blah. Um, and then, uh, and then I graduated from college and I thought, well, before I go back into academia, it was always like, what's the next step before I go right, back? Right. And the next step for me was I'm going to move to the city. I'm going to probably work in fashion because I loved clothing. I still mm-hmm. do love fashion and creativity in that space. And one of the first jobs that came to me was working at this quote unquote agency. I didn't even know what that meant. Right. Called, called Anomaly. And right. the woman that I met there was unbelievably inspiring. I was just going to be like a coordinator for one of the strategy and creative groups there. And and then it just took off. And I just, I was fascinated by the work we were doing. It was all mm-hmm. in beverage, actually. It was all in uh, new beverage innovation. Oh, wow. And uh, basically, you know, ever since then, I think there was something that really took hold of my imagination, if you will. And it really played into my like uh, fascination with understanding people and what they're attracted to and why and how they sort themselves into groups and what that means about identity and all yeah, this stuff. No, I know. I love so, it. I love it. I love yeah. It. Yeah. And so I basically never looked back. I, instead of going back to school, I just got an education by Getting going jobs. from, yeah, going from job to job. Yeah. So, I mean, this is going to be a ridiculous question because it's a very big one, but I mean, you've worked at brands like Pepsi, Nestle, Target, Ralph Lauren, Clinique. I mean, I didn't even put that into your intro because it was too long and it got, you know, boring, but like (laughs) if you had to sort of sum up, let's say between one and three big learnings that you took away from your experiences with those brands, they can be across any discipline what would you say were sort of like big aha moments for you um, in those early years? Mm-hmm. Um, that's a really big question and I don't want to boil the ocean. So I just want to make sure that my answers are clear and right. all work together. Um, Though they don't have to be clear, nor do they yeah. all have to work together unless you well, want to I, I'm not, here on Monday. So, <laughs> So, um, so my role in, so, yeah, why don't actually would be helpful probably to clarify what my role was while I was working with some of these companies. Right. So I was always on the strategic side of the marketing, uh, process. Mm-hmm. So that means that while very creative, the entire marketing, advertising, branding space is very creative, obviously. Right. But, um, 
but uh, I, I would always work with with creative teams, the people that actually do the art direction or the copywriting or whatever, and understand the connection between the business objective and then the brand, the brand, uh, the brand objective for the campaign. That yeah. was sort of my role, broadly speaking. Um, it there's differences between what a brand strategist does, what a campaign strategist, whatever. I've played all the strategy roles essentially, mm-hmm. and, and essentially it's connecting the dots. You know, advertising and branding is not art because it needs to serve a purpose, which is to create action in a consumer. Right. You know, and that that's the process of action, eliciting action that's right for the customer, that's right for the brand, that's right for the business. That's right. where the strategy lies. Yeah. So um, I think one of the first learnings, maybe that is one of the first learnings that I ever had, which is... Um, there is an art to obviously to branding and creativity and using the imagination, but at the end of the day, it ultimately needs to serve a purpose, and the purpose needs to be uh, creating a relationship with an end customer. And yeah. you need to do that through the product, and you need to do that through the messaging, and you need to do that through you know a concerted, orchestrated system. Yeah, and. The fact that there are rules to that system when it comes into branding is very was very attractive to me because yeah. um, brands are really a set of symbols, rituals, um, spaces, words that create. They're a system of rules that create a sense of familiarity, of excitement, of whatever. And the second I learned that I was building these systems yep. where people and brands and businesses come together. I was, it's super exciting. So it goes back under, to the religion, right? I mean, you literally just said sets of rituals, words, yes. rules, and systems. That sounds yeah. exactly like. It's very, know. it is, it is that way. And there's a reason why, I mean, this all goes back to Yuval Noah Harari, who is an unbelievable modern philosopher. Mm-hmm. He wrote Sapiens and other things, yeah. but, um, uh, reading his work was a really big unlock for me because it translates both to religion, you know, why I find it fascinating and brands, which is that humans need to have these systems to explain um, and why they exist, but also to create group action. So, yeah. so brands really are about bringing groups of people together around an idea, around a product and to create a benefit, a benefit in their lives. You know, yeah. that you have to create that benefit. You have to give something positive back. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so uh, every great brand does this. And that's also why people stay at these great brands for a long time. That's why, you know, at the Estee Lauder brands or the, you know, the Pepsi brands or the Coca-Cola brands, why they're so strong, they have people inside of them truly understand how important the, the you know, the power of that brand is when it's done right and all yeah. the things come together. Yeah, that's it. And and so why, I mean, why, why your own brand? Like, it was it just like at the point where you were like, I love this stuff so much. I just want to take something mm. brand new and apply it. I mean, yeah. there's a difference between doing it for a bunch of other brands and then doing it for your own. Right. I would say um, maybe one of the other things that I learned working mm-hmm. inside really, really huge companies is that it's very difficult to make things happen in large companies. Um, That's not to say, you know, they're not, it wasn't great experience and I absolutely loved every minute of it, but there are new ideas and really, really 
differentiated ideas, I think, need to happen outside of a yeah. large juggernaut. Yeah. Um, and I'm, I'm the kind of person, anyone who knows me knows that I'm the kind of person who is not long for a system that uh, does not allow newness in. And I am someone who like craves breaking rules and doing something differently and doing things, you know, in a way that it's kind of like if you're not doing something Creative. different, if you're not creating something new, if you're not creating something better, you know, whatever, then I don't know why, why you're doing it basically mm -hmm. at the end of the day. So as I got older, I feel like I really developed a toolkit that allowed me to be able to really, you know, step outside of the system and start building, you know, a, a different system along with everyone else that is involved with the company. And um, can yeah. you elaborate a little bit on that toolkit? Sure. Um, I think the <laughs> like first getting brass tacks. Yeah, I, <laughs> um, I think the first thing that was really important is to develop a sense of like clarity. Um, brands and companies need to be, especially in the very, very beginning when you don't have systems, you don't have like, you know, a project manager or, right. you know, someone telling you what the rules are. Um, you really have to be able to strive for a sort of simplicity and clarity and vision. And my whole job was honing my vision skills, you know, mm -hmm. on behalf of companies, but you always need to have that inspiring North star. You always need to have that purpose. You always need to have, you know, a really clean understanding of why you're doing what you're doing and what your yeah. differentiation is. And so that was really important. And I, it takes a long time to get there. It's yeah. very, and so I think at a certain point in my life, I, I did end up getting there. So it allowed me to really be able to cut straight to the heart of something. When we thought about United Sodas of America, it was very clear to me. It was very simple. Everyone else is demonizing soda and running away from soda. The, therefore, the opportunity is in the center of soda. Right. And that was like, ching, like yeah. so clear. Okay, we're going to invent we're going to reimagine soda from the inside of the word soda out. That is a kind of creative vision and creative idea and like insp inspiring mission for me personally, that I was like, I know exactly what we need to do here. Right. You need to dissect all the things that are bad about this category. We need to reject them and we need to take all the good things and we need to hang on to them and then add new elements. So it became like, you know, that was an important skill to have. And then the other one is just learning how to manage people and yeah. all of that. It's key. You don't learn it one day on the job. You learn yeah. it by, and I'm, you know, nobody's perfect, but no. you go through big teams, you manage really challenging situations. You know, it's funny, like in the beginning of, of doing any job, you're like, I remember the, the thing that I used to think was a crisis when I was like in my, <laughs> my right. first job. Like, what is a crisis, you know? <laughs> and then over time, you're like, oh, this is just a misunderstanding or this right. is just part of the course. There's going to be mistakes. There's going to be things. The whole job is really solving problems and also just managing the people on the team, making sure everybody's on the same page, making sure communication's going well, making yeah. sure that, you know, when things get tough, you know how to bring people together, you know, like, 
I, yeah. that's an on, that's an ongoing life skill, but you, you know, I felt like at a certain point I was really excited about doing that. And yeah, um, no, I think it's great. And I don't think it's necessarily, you know, I think I've said this before on the show, it's not intuitive. It's not like if you're a nice person, you're a great manager. Right. It's, you know, it, it, there, there is, there is, there is more to it than that. Um, and it does take a really long time to learn. Okay. We're going to take a quick break. And then when we get sure. back, we're going to talk all about United Sodas. So we'll be right back. This episode is brought to you by Hearst Ranch. The Hearst family has raised cattle on California's central coast since 1865. Today, Hearst Ranch's signature product is their 100% grass-fed, completely hormone and antibiotic-free beef. The Hearst Ranches have always treated their animals with great care. Their cattle live a completely natural existence as foragers and grazers. Well-managed grazing fertilizes the land naturally, sustains a seasonal rhythm to the ranches, and produces a remarkable meat whose flavor is the authentic taste of the American West. Hearst Ranch beef is available seasonally, May through August, in select Whole Food markets throughout California and all year round at their retail locations in San Simeon and Paso Robles. And now, HRN listeners in Arizona, Nevada, and California can get Hearst Ranch beef delivered right to their door through Larder Meat Company. Go to lardermeatco.com and shop the 100% grass-fed box to stock your freezer with Hearst Ranch beef. That's L-A-R-D-E-R, meatco.com. Learn more about the storied history, farming practices, and conservation efforts of Hearst Ranch at hearstranch.com. I'm back with Marisa Zupan, founder of United Sodas. Okay, um, so let's talk soda. So I love this because basically what you said was you know, there's so many flavored sparkling or hints mm-hmm. of lime zest or, you know, like, and I mean, they're all great. And I've had a bunch of them on the show and it's a massive category. So there's room for everyone. There's a cap for every bottle or whatever the expression is. Um, but I like that you had such a powerful aha moment where you were like, we're not going to be a, a, a that we're going to be a soda and mm-hmm we're going to lean hard into making that space better. Mm-hmm. Um, and so where did you, like, one of the things that I guess I've read that I think is particularly interesting is that you guys started with a name, with mm-hmm. the color and design of the packages, of the cans, and that that was very intentional. And then that guided the process of developing the flavors. A, is mm-hmm. that accurate? B, that's very cool. And I'd like to hear more about it. Sure. Yeah, that is that is more or less accurate. Um, yeah. There was, you know, my co-founders and I were super, you know, we were big idea people and um, also very intuitive. So, you know, there's this sort of notion, okay, we're going to do something in this space. Let's write down a bunch of names. And I think, you know, you kind of have to write a lot of stuff before you get to something interesting. And mm-hmm. United Sodas of America popped out and it just became like, whoa. Yeah. Uh, and so it's also a very unconventional name yeah. for this. Uh, for yes, yeah, not like 
good enough. Yeah, but, it's not yeah. it's not like a single right. you know name. Like it's not called like Henry or you know or whatever it is. You know, it's like with no e h n r y. Right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and and there is a kind of interesting um, old schoolness to the name. It almost feels like this could have been a rebrand of an old stodgy company. Yeah. Um, no, like an Adidas or like a cool seventies. Exactly. Uh, And so, you know, the the idea that the name of the brand also carries so much meaning, like what is what do we mean by the word united? What do we mean by the word sodas? What do we mean by the word America? And that that to me was the first thing I thought of if I was like, okay, if we're building a brand around this, we have to answer those three things. And that's the first those were the first three questions I had to answer. What do we mean by United? What do we mean by sodas? What do we mean by America? And that guided a lot of the research in the market. Um, and at the time, I was also working with Alex Center and his studio called Center Design. They've, they're integral to the creation of the brand. And um, I was working with them on other projects, actually. And, uh, and I really like working with them because they are very open to working kind of side by side with strategy, like strategy minds to um, to co-build something. So instead of just saying, oh, I have an idea, build a brand on top of it. It's sort of mm-hmm. the branding and the idea happen together. So, so funny. So- I just have to admit, I, in my like research, yeah, when I was like reading about you, I found him yeah. and I basically like just messaged him on LinkedIn and I was like, you're this is you're so cool this is so cool like (laughs) I read all this stuff about him and his design I'm like can you come on my podcast like and I was like Maurice is coming on so maybe you know y'all come on in the spring and he was he was like yes I'd love to like it was super he was super chill back and I I definitely got like that like around really creative people I don't have a thing for like actors or rock stars but i have a thing for people that are just like super creative Mm -hmm, um mm -hmm. so anyway if he mentions to you that he got like a little bit of a harassing stalker (laughs) vibe from me i i i will accept that (laughs) it happened and it's true and i think he's gonna come on in march so anywho um, That's awesome. Uh, Alex is a Alex is a blast. But I like the way that you're talking about this because we're doing a refresh right now, and we're it's what I've loved about the process is that you cannot do the visual without the strategy. You 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 can't you can't do the tone of voice. You can't do the copy. Yeah. You can't you can't do any of it if you don't know. You know, and we've been around long enough to know kind of who we are and what we stand for and who we're talking to and what they need. Um, but doing this as a, as a really deep exercise, um, has been so much fun. I mean, and we don't even know what the new logo, et cetera, is going to look like yet, but just, um, so, so in your, like you were bringing together sort of, what do we mean by these three things? Like, Mm -hmm. and, and building all of your strategic sort of brain power. And Mm -hmm. then how did that what did that look like in a meeting when it was then matched up with, you know, visual? Like, yeah. what, what were those conversations like at the beginning? Mm-hmm. So the 
the first thing you know that we had to really do is understand the market uh and alex and i had a really deep understanding of it because he has a background in beverage he worked at coke for 10 years and Mm -hmm. i had a background in beverage because i've been working with beverage companies you know my whole career so we had a good we had a good handle on what was going on in the market but we really had to just put it into like structure the thoughts, which is what I did and sort of created a story around what was missing and what we needed to do. And if we are going to be breaking down, you know, literally like creating a kind of deconstruction of what soda is and then building it back up again, mm-hmm. uh, you know, what, what are the learnings that we had? So coming to the insights, understanding who our customer was, learning what what was broken about the category, learning about how we wanted to fix it. All of these were like beats in a story. Then, you know, what you need is a brand visual that pays that off. Mm -hmm. And the idea that we are literally deconstructing soda and building it back up to get again, that felt really strong with this identity that Center brought to us that was kind of this hyper minimal, mm-hmm. uh, you know, color and text based, um, you know, variety focused identity. Yeah. And, uh, and so all of those things together, just there are subconscious cues that people get when they see the can. The yeah. colors, the colors just scream you know, choose me. Yeah. Explore me. Like yep. I am about, I am about variety. I'm about identity. I'm about choice. And then the simplicity of the can also no, indicates there is no BS happening here. Yep. Like what, what you see is what you get. And it's also somewhat of a delight and a mystery. So, you know, you want to crack that can open yep. and then what you're getting is something you know, an experience that's very different than what soda has been about in the past because it simply looks different. And I'm so, holding it as different. Exactly. Even yeah. the texture, the texture yeah. for us yeah. is so, so critical. Yeah. Uh, and oh my gosh, the amount of rounds that we did uh, nailing that texture was, you know, we really, <laughs> we really had a journey there. It was a, absolutely a huge blast, honestly, well, the R&D for that. I, yeah, I want to talk a little bit about the R&D because, you know, I feel like what you said earlier was that it it's not art, right? There's a there's a goal at the end. Art yeah. has no goal, right? Art but this is a goal to get people to buy something, presumably to make money doing it, right? Mm-hmm. Um there like there is just the commerce piece to it. And mm-hmm you know, from a supply chain perspective to start with 12 SKUs. Yeah. Um, I know what that's like. That's not easy. No. Um, it's super complicated. And, you know, I'm just kind of wondering, was there, and even just sort of the amount of R and D on the can, right? Yeah. I mean, you had R and D on 12 flavors as well. Yeah. I mean, and you probably tasted 600, oh. I would imagine, right? Like, so, so, so much R&D on the liquid. Yeah, two, I mean. Two, two years plus. I mean, yeah. it was, it was yeah. intense. Yeah. Um, so at any point where you kind of like, maybe we should just start with three, <laughs> like see yeah. what happens. Yeah. <laughs> so what's really interesting about the way that we built this brand is it's almost like my dream because the way I think about a brand, a lot of people think, okay, so the brand services the business. In order for us to make money, we need a good brand to sell the stuff that we need to make money you know, from. So that's the purpose of the brand. 
I actually, maybe it's my background. They do need to work together, but in, in, in the other way, yeah, the, if the business needs to be so good and so figured out, yep. that it allows us to do amazing things. Yep. The money that we make from the brand or the, you know, the, the reception that we get from the brand is reinvested back into the ideas. Right. And that's how we keep the system going. Now, yeah. they definitely need to be in balance and everything. But the reason why we went with 12 and we did have conversations, you know, once you start to, you know, do all the calculations and you understand mm -hmm. what your logs are and you start to do some projecting and you're like, right. oh, boy, 12, oh, boy. Um, you know, it is very attractive to be like, oh, okay, well, we'll do three or we'll do four or whatever. And at the end of the day, when we looked at what we were trying to accomplish and we had to have that, that wow moment, the mm -hmm. brand itself is the product, is these 12 products. Yeah. Without that, without the variety pack experience opening just exactly the thing that we're talking about at yeah. the top of the podcast, without that we're not as successful. And so how do you translate that? Sorry. Sorry. So bad. Finish up. No, you can finish up. I was just saying that's why we felt so strongly about it. We kept coming back to the statement and the brand needs to drive this decision and we'll figure it out. So two things. One is, and I, I feel like people who listen to me on this podcast hear me say it almost every show, but this is why margins, margins, margins. Like mm -hmm, this mm -hmm. is why it like, you have to have a product that actually makes sense and you can't just assume that eventually it will make sense and you can spend all this money on the brand. Like mm -hmm. it just, it, it's going to be just an uphill battle. So that's just mm -hmm. for founders out there that are listening that want to hear me pontificate. <laughs> it's so true. The, the second piece is, um, you know, you launched D2C and I don't know if that was intentional or if that had to do with COVID or if you thought maybe you would be doing, um, you know, in tandem, it makes sense as a direct to consumer. It is a surprise and delight. It just is the whole thing. The whole experience mm -hmm. is the the website is fun. Ordering is fun. Getting that big box is fun. Opening it up, doing the thing that we did, playing with the different flavors, the colors, mm -hmm. making, I, I would play with the colors and make like this little rainbow and then that little rainbow. I mean, <laughs> yeah. it, it, felt like it was like a children. It just was so it's, it's what I want for the sauces with the squeezy pouches. It was so tactile. It, I felt mm -hmm. so creative just engaging with it. Um, and it could, it could, I mean, you could just continue to continue building it D to C. How does that experience then translate to a retailer, right? Or mm -hmm. is that is that not part of the plan? I mean, how, how are you thinking about, I guess, building out that wholesale channel? Yeah, this is where um, the sort of new way that we're building this brand needs to then interact with the hard truths of, right. of the, the public industry. Right. <laughs> and the beverage industry is one of the most you mean it's it's not it's it's an institution you know it is right. very very much you know it's it's how it's run by coke and pepsi and the mm -hmm. big guys and everyone else is in the game that they've created and um it is big time you know the yeah. volumes are not it's this is a volume business period and um 
And so that means that you need to achieve a level of, uh, you know, shelf coverage in your key markets. That uh, means you, you can't just like assume that you're going to be D to C forever because right. beverage needs extra volume. It really does. Uh, it needs right. that 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 and, and and it also the shopping experience for the customer. Beverages are not inherently or intuitively D to C at this point for customers. Mm-hmm. Um, COVID is changing that for sure, but there is still something about discovery happening with a single can on a shelf. And we know that, and we've always intended to get on shelf. So we're building out that entire experience. But what I'm really learning that's fascinating is um, it's about using both the physical in-store selection and experience working within the industry. You're working within the beverage zeitgeist, if you will, Mm -hmm. beverage zeitgeist and the D2C part and how those two things kind of interact with each Play other. Together. Yeah. Like different touch points to the brand. Yeah. You know, what for the consumer to be in that channel. For 100%. Sure. And mm-hmm. some people might discover us through online and D2C and then find us in store. Others might have the exact opposite experience. Yeah. And yeah. so being aware of that, being okay with that sort of fluidity is important. There's a lot of thought that goes into... Um, you know, obviously our variety pack experience is not designed to be a plug and play solution for the way beverages bought and sold right. you know, through distributors. We know that that's okay. Uh, we know that on shelf, we have a different presentation, but we perform very, very well there just by single cans because yeah. it, so it's yeah. there. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So there's different, you know, different uh, settings. Uh, bring out different uh, benefits like of the of the product that we've made and different facets of its strengths. And we just need to play to those appropriately in those channels. I think that brings up a good point. And this is something else I want founders to to hear. But one of the things that we're doing sort of as we build out our forecast, you know, for the next three years and think about strategies, really thinking about it by channel. So to the extent that like we were saying not only is, you know, sometimes the packaging looks different or, the, you know, the sort of the experience of the brand looks different on shelf as it does direct to consumer. But, mm-hmm. you know, it's also there's a different reason why a consumer is shopping for you in that channel. Mm-hmm. It takes different people to build out those channels you know, like your team for D2C is going to be very different from your team that's, you know, selling to to Costco, right? Like, yeah. And what we're trying to do is sort of think about like the who, how, what, why, when of every channel differently. Why would someone buy us through an SMS Mm -hmm. versus going online versus going to Whole Foods? Mm -hmm. And at each one of those sort of things, who, who are the right people to build that out? What are the most important things on our end? You know, in Costco, it's obviously going to be like making sure that the price works Um, you know, price needs to work everywhere, but it needs to work even more there. So Mm -hmm. I I really think it's a fun thing. This is sort of a time where I think a lot of us are, you know, buyers aren't making, they're not having conversations with us right now. Um, A lot of our brands aren't necessarily like holiday quote unquote brands. Mm -hmm. So we almost have like the month of December to sort of, figure some stuff out before hitting the ground running. And Mm -hmm. I think it's just a really worthwhile exercise. Um, 
you know, that's just, again, a little side note um, that, that you brought up that kind of reminded me uh, about something. Oh, I um, definitely agree yeah. with all of that, for sure. So now, in terms of your kind of understanding of the bigger trends and the bigger market and sort of understanding the consumer, like, what would you say are some hallmarks of a successful brand, brands that have done it right, brands that are, are doing it right? Um, like, if you could kind of put them all in a bowl and then make Venn diagrams about, like, what they are all doing <laughs> or not doing, you know, where where is the the overlap? Like, what are they getting right? Mm-hmm. Or, or other, or legacy brands that you just think, like, continue to crush it. They continue to come out every year with something that just kind of, I mean, I don't know. I When I saw the, the two McDonald's arches separated, mm-hmm. you know, as like a social distance thing, I mm-hmm. like, I got teary eyed. Yeah. I mean, I don't have any particular fondness for McDonald's, but like that was just genius. Marketing. Yeah. Well, and then Coke did it too with, um, they took the, their logo and they separated the letters. So they yeah. moved, they spaced the letters out that I'm a, I'm a huge sucker for that stuff oh. because I know. So the, the elegance to that is that, and this is gets back to the thing that I mentioned about what I learned working with big iconic brands like that, mm-hmm. which is, um, there is a really, uh, you know, the, the level of control and restraint and confidence that you need to develop these icons for your brand is very difficult. The system that you build, the colors that you use, the symbols, the everything. And once you have that established, then, and, and people, uh, it imprints on people. You know, a lot of people say, you know, the most iconic shape in the world is the shape of the Coca-Cola bottle. That is powerful. And so then to take that and to change it even slightly or the logo or the mm-hmm. arches that you're talking about, that in that creates a conversation. That's like taking a symbol that people recognize and, and imbuing it with new meaning. And yeah. that conversation, the best brands can have that subtlety of conversation on, uh, on using the, the least words possible. Mm-hmm. I think mm-hmm. one of the things that I think brands are... We went through a, a phase. We went through a phase where transparency and authenticity and everything is very important to brands. And I think that it continues to be important. The internet brought on this idea that we have to be open and communicative and yada, yada. Mm-hmm. But there is a point at which brands can over-explain, talk too much, fill up the room with all of their dull yeah. words, 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 words. And it moves the brand away from being not a person brands are not people they are these systems there are mm-hmm. these places that you create where people come and they bring what they need to it and so i think we're actually getting to a point at this time where we're sort of starting to see the great new brands rise out of talking yeah. too much and having too much whatever and really coming back to basics and really saying we need to clarify we need to become we need to use these you know, our voice in a simpler way. And um, there's a part to United Sodas. Maybe that's just my preference because that's the type of brands that I like to be. Yeah, I love that. 
um, that United Sodas has that built into its DNA. I often talk about how I, I don't want to be the, the chattiest brand in the room. You yeah. want to be the room, the brand that shows up, says very little and says so much, you know, by That's saying because that. you come from really smart academic people. And they have that way of just sitting there and like, you know, that they're so much smarter than you, but they're not talking. <laughs> and like, I, I know enough of them to just be like, I sound like a jackass right now and I'm just going to shut up, you know? <laughs> um, but it's, I think it, it, that is such a good point. Like you just want to be sitting in your seat, comfortable in your seat, knowing what you know, and not feeling like you need to trip all over yourself. You know, I think I right. love that. I yeah. mean, 98% of communication between humans happens in their body language and their facial expressions. And while brands don't have body language and facial expressions, they have logos, they have colors, they have type, they have yeah. sound. And the I think getting away from an over-reliance of text is important. Which no one really reads anyway. No one reads it. Did you notice that on our cans, we have no explanatory yeah. text? It's because it. what we did is we broke it down. We said, you know, most of the most of the products that you see that are about being, you know, 30 calories or healthier for you or better formulation, but premium ingredients, they stick all that stuff on the front of the can. It was our bet that we said, hey, there's an entire thing called the nutritional panel of nutrition facts that contains that right. information. We believe that people know that it's there. And if they want to see it, they can turn the can around and look at it. Yeah. <laughs> That's what they do. Yeah. It has not inhibited sale on shelf. Yeah. No, it's amazing. It's it's so cool. And it's, it's so liberating. And I think one of the things I love the most about, you know, just your brand and talking to you and doing the research, reading about you, it's like, I... I think for a couple of years there, I just, I felt like everything was starting to look the same and mm -hmm. everyone was starting to sound the same and everyone started to have, you know, we all read that like bland, you know, article on Bloomberg and yeah. You know, yeah. not everyone agreed, but I mean, it, it is, it, 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 it kind of, I was like nodding my head and like shaking as I was reading it totally. because there's something about our brand, like Haven's Kitchen, you know, it, it's, it's a little hokey compared to all that, you know, mm -hmm. and it's like a little old fashioned and, it, and people could see these things on the shelf and be like, was Haven's Kitchen here in the seventies? Like similarly, you know, is I it, love that. is it new? Is it old? And, and I love that, you know, um, all that's to say that we do need to like freshen her up a little bit, but she'll be, she'll be freshened up. Um, but I guess I love, I love how modern it is and I love that it trusts the consumer that they don't need because what happens is you start with, you know, organic, all natural. Now you have keto, whole, yeah. whole 30, it's water. How can water be vegan or not vegan? It's, of course it's gluten-free. Come on, you know, and it just starts to be irritating and like, yeah. you're just, you're just the flooded with these symbols all over the place because everyone feels like that's what they need to do to sort of be like earnest, mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. um, but I think there's something about even the poppy colors and, and the font it's, it's not overly earnest. And I'm so glad we're moving away from that. I'm so glad. Cause it just got, it got old. I'm sure it was really creative, you know? I mean, I guess, I guess Everlane maybe was sort of the beginning of that. Um, maybe Warby, 
maybe Warby. Yeah. 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 I mean, and the thing is, is that, that like, I am so inspired by those brands, uh, you know, at the moments that they came out, they, they, right. they read the room at the yeah. time and they got it and they nailed it, you know, and I, I really appreciate it about them. And, um, you know, they, they keep on keeping on. It's just, you know, we didn't launch when they did. We launched when we did. So we, we had to do it differently. Right. And, yeah. um, and I just, uh, you know, the other thing that I think, especially in the beverage space is that there's so, I mean, people drink so many things all during the day. Yeah. It's not like we're asking someone to buy a winter coat where they're not going to buy 25 winter coats. I mean, I don't know, maybe some people do. But no, I know. Some <laughs> you know, very- I had a on a couple months ago named Amrit and she said something so great to me because I'm really just not a competitive person. But I mean, me I think I'm, you know, I'm like, I just feel like there's a, there's a cap for every bottle. Right. Um, but we were talking about sauce and, and she said, sauce is like lip gloss. Yeah. Like, you have like a drawer next to your thing and you just like whip out like do I want this color do I want shimmer do I want strawberry like no one just has one this is my only lip color I mean there are a couple of people that are like die hard Chanel number whatever's but for the most part you know you're not asking people to buy a winter coat you're asking them to to try something new and try it again and and keep coming back but I wanted to touch on something our last questions sure that you said, because you were talking about, we didn't launch when they launched, we launched when we launched. And Mm -hmm. you, from my understanding, have had an incredibly successful, you know, launch in the middle Mm -hmm. of a pandemic. (laughs) And obviously there are some, as they say, tailwinds. I love that. um, That are, that are helping. Right. Um, But obviously it's also just like, it's a global pandemic in the middle Mm -hmm. of like the biggest news cycle we've ever had ever. Mm -hmm. So what would you say you did right? I mean, what, what were, what were you like? We got to get this right. If we're going to launch in May, 2020. Yeah. So I get asked this question a lot and I I have trouble answering it because um, the fact of the matter is, is that we didn't, know that there was going to be a pandemic, but we were building this brand for years before it. So, you know, it's not like we said, oh, let's pivot and change the name and call it something else. You know, we did, we, there was nothing that dramatic. I would say, um, I think the reason why we were able to not just float, but swim in this chaotic situation is because all brands, all good brands need to have a level of confidence and clarity in who they are to to survive. You know, there's yeah. always going to be disruptions in the market. Yeah. And so a, a brand that stands on its own two feet and knows what it's about and knows how it solves problems, not, not what the problems are and what the solutions are, but you have to know how you would solve a problem differently, what is right and what is wrong for you. That's what a brand should do. It should let you know, is this a good decision or a bad decision for us? Mm-hmm. And we had that. We, we were full of a team that built it from the beginning, feel it in our bones. And when the pandemic hit, we knew what we needed to do to get through it quite fluidly. We knew, right. hey, should we delay by two weeks or should we, we delay by a month? How do we pivot the messaging? We're going to pivot it like this. How do we mm-hmm. make sure that we're we're being sensitive to the times? Let's let's relook at the copy. Let's whatever. It was immediate. And 
the only way to do that is if there's clarity with the team about the brand. And so there might be something crazy that happens in 2021. We don't know. Um, but as long as you keep that level of, you know, clarity and integrity and on the same pageness, then you really can get through extremely difficult things. And I think that's why we ended up being able to do. I love it. It goes back to that sort of, you know, pressure test. Like I remember my first episode back in March and just thinking, I just kept going back to the three little pigs, you know, Mm. like what makes the brick house bricks, you know, what, because there are a lot of brands out there that look just as sturdy, you know, they look beautiful. Um, They look like it's all good. And then something happens and something falls apart. So what are those things that like make a really strong foundation? And I think it's that it's like what you're saying. It's funny because my week, my guest last week was saying something about not, you know, one of the mistakes she makes is when, people benchmark against other companies. And I was like, that's just pretty good life advice in general. But like, this is pretty life advice in general, too. Like, take the time to know who you are, know what you stand for, know, you know, get really clear on what problem you're solving, who you're speaking to, why you're doing what you're doing. And then and then everything, whether you're launching in a pandemic or in an election or, you know, in a depression or recession or whatever. Mm -hmm. There'll, there'll be a certain amount of just kind of, you know, just continuity um, and, and as you said, integrity, which I think is is really cool. Um, mm-hmm. All right. Well, I, I feel like this was amazing. Um, I'm so happy that we met. I'm so happy I discovered your brand. I'm so psyched I got to ask you all these questions. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Allie, this has been absolutely wonderful. You asked such great questions. I feel like I've been a, on a journey through, <laughs> through myself. <laughs> uh, no, but you, you, the, the way that you made the connections to, um, you know, from brand to business to people to life. I mean, it, that's really what it's all about. And yeah. uh, it's, it's a real pleasure to speak with someone who gets that and brings that out of it. That's why we're doing it. So I'm just, I'm a fan yeah. of people who, who know how to do it. And I'm always just trying to figure out, you know, I mean, my team just knows like I'm just constantly refining and refining and refining um, mm. just cause you know, and, and who we were and what worked in 2012, you know, it's a little different. It's the consumers changed. The zeitgeist has changed. We've totally. changed you know, what people are looking for has changed. What's available to them outside of us has changed. So mm-hmm. um, all of this has been super fun. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank Jess, you. thank you for engineering as always. Um, Thanks, Jess. <laughs> I think I have, I th- yeah, I have a couple more guests before winter break. So um, everyone listening, thank you again. And to Marisa's team, hey, right back at you um for everyone listening thank you so much as always for listening and for all your dms and um come back next week for another episode of in the sauce in the sauce is powered by simplecast thanks for listening to heritage radio network food radio supported by you For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. 
Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.